welcome to the Financial Planning for Canadian Business Owners podcast. You will hear about industry insights with award-winning financial planner and entrepreneur, Jason Pereira. Through the interviews with different experts with their stories and advice, you will learn how you can navigate the challenges of being an entrepreneur, plan for success, and make the most of your business and life. And now, your host, Jason Pereira. Hello and welcome. Today on the show, I have John Shell, Managing Director and Partner at Social Capital Partners. John has been an advocate for employee ownership trusts in Canada for a while, and this is a reason to change tax law. I brought him on the show to talk about what employee ownership trusts are, how they can benefit employees, and how Canada's first kick at the can on this fell a little bit short. And with that, here's my name with John. John, thanks for taking the time today. No problem. Nice to talk to you. My pleasure. So, John, tell us a little bit about what it is you do. Social Capital Partners is a nonprofit based uh, in Toronto. I've been around for about 20 years. We focus on uh, trying to find new financial techniques that allow for more people to take advantage of ownership and good jobs in the economy. So there are a lot of folks in the Canada who have not had the same type of luck that Bill and I have, who, you know, Bill started SCP at, at 20 years ago. And, and so that luck is, is just very unevenly distributed. So, so SCP focuses on finding ways to you know, break down barriers and find uh, opportunities for people who either can't get a good job or who don't have access to ownership to be able to, to access those things. Excellent. So let's dive into the topic at hand for today. So sure. at hand is employee ownership trust. So tell us about what an employee ownership trust is and where the concept came about. So employee ownership trust is kind of a blanket term for a, a structure that exists in the tax act of other countries, namely the US and the UK. And the objective of these structures are to help owners who are looking to sell their businesses instead of selling to a financial buyer or a competitor, find a way to sell to their employees as a group. And the initial version of this, which was, it's actually a really interesting story. It um, dates back to the 70s in the US, where a lawyer out of California by the name of Louis Kelso decided that he was worried that capitalism had a limited time frame. He was seeing a lot of inequality in California, and thought, you know, if, if, you know, and at the time it was kind of the 50s and 60s. And so there was even the height of the Cold War. And he was thinking, we're, you know, capitalism is going to lose unless we can allocate more benefits to the economy to more people. And so he started designing, you know, just on his own, this new vehicle that allowed uh, some of his clients who were owners of businesses to sell their companies to their employees through this trust, allowing the company to continue to operate the same way it always operated. So there's no one person, one vote. It was not that structure. It was designed for kind of continuance of management and designed so that employees didn't have to pay for their shares. Because his, you know, his entire objective was how do we find a way for people who don't have access to ownership in this economy to have access? And so what that structure did is, is it allowed a new trust created to borrow money, mostly from the owner themselves. The owner would lend a bunch of money to the trust and then the trust would buy the shares from the owner. And you know the upshot of all of that is that the company would owe the owner the price of the company. It would pay it over time. And once it paid out the owner, that those shares, that company would now belong to the employees. And the way you set it up, every employee accumulated shares over time. So it was great for retention. And then when employees left the company, uh, they could cash in their shares. The company would buy them out. And he was able to convince a, a very powerful senator in the U.S. Congress back then to put this idea 
into their Retirement Act in 1974, and it became what's now known as the Employee Stock Ownership Plan in the U.S. that's grown to now it has you know, 6,500-odd companies with 14 million American workers sharing in $1.7 trillion in employee assets. So a phenomenal a success story from a public policy point of view. And it's had all these great benefits for workers, for communities. And I'm probably going on longer than you want to on this, uh, Jason. So, I'll, you know, I'll no, keep well, going. Keep going. Maybe, yeah. And some of these companies have been phenomenally successful. I mean, uh, Publix is a grocery chain in the southeastern U.S. A bunch of Canadians will know it for their travels to Florida. That is a 200,000-employee company that is over 80% employee-owned. They've had grocery clerks retire and then get cashed out for like a million dollars for their shares. Winco Foods, similar grocery chains in, in the Midwest, has produced something like $4.7 billion for its employees over the last 40 years. Amstead Industries has produced 2,600 frontline millionaires out of kind of engineers and shop workers um, at an industrial company and, you know, Cliff Bar, Taylor Guitars. So really successful companies. And the UK has seen this success, put their foot in, in the door here in 2014 when they established what they call the Employee Ownership Trust. And that's a slightly different structure than the one Lewis Kelso designed but it allocates profit sharing every year to all of its employees. And a lot, but it allows the same thing. It allows an owner to sell their company to all of their employees at no cost to their employees using leverage. And there are now, you know, last year there were 332 companies in the UK that sold to their employees this year, covering a little over 30,000 workers. So anyway, very successful public policy results in those two countries. Okay. So let's talk about these things in the context of the alternatives, right? So I think the alternative everybody is familiar with or most familiar with is the concept of an employee share ownership plan. Can you talk to me how this differs from an employee share ownership plan? And when you, do you mean the employee stock option plan? Stock option. Like the, well, well, yeah, I mean, yeah. So yeah, so stock option plans are yeah. just in the form of it, right? You have shares versus yeah. restricted stock, whatever it is. Yes. Yeah, no, great, great. So in, in Canada, if you say, hey, we want to do an ESOP, they're like, great, stock option plan. We already do that. What's, what are you talking about? And so um, that's why we've used the term EOT here in Canada. Stock option plans, I think people are generally very familiar with. They come in a number of different forms, you know, RSUs and DSUs and, and a lot of public companies. And that's where an employee will get access to shares at a certain price. And then they're able to, to execute on those shares later on after the, this growth of the company. So they get to participate in the growth of the, of the shares of the company. So they're great. They tend to be used for a minority of the company. So it's usually like 5 or 10% of a company is in a stock option plan. Some companies goes a little bit higher than that, but you rarely see it above 20% of the company. Those shares are often used as a sort of a, a bonus, right? So, so executives are often those that participate most in stock option plans. So you, you won't see a grocery clerk at Loblaws with access to stock options. So it's usually used as a retention tool for more senior executives. So it has a great application. I think you know where it's most broadly applicable is in the startup community. So stock options are often used and can take a much a larger chunk of a, of a startup, often a tech company, to reward all of its uh, new employees, often in exchange for taking the lower salary. But that's, that's how stock options are commonly used. In this case, uh, you are mostly selling a majority or all of your um, shares to the trust, which is very different from a stock option plan. It happens immediately, right? So this isn't something that uh, happens over time. And employees, uh, all employees have access 
add to this. So this is more of a broad-based program designed specifically for succession. Where a stock option plan is designed for more reward and retention, a EOT is designed for succession. Fair enough. Does that make sense, Jason? That does make sense. No, you're absolutely right. And that's exactly how I would frame it. So one other option that exists in Canada, many people are not familiar with, is the ability to create a co-op to purchase yeah. Yes. Can you tell me how this differs in regards? Totally. Co-ops are great. We have no, you know, we think co-ops are terrific. There are about 500 or so co-ops in Canada employing about 6,000 people. The challenge with co-ops when applied to a succession context for a larger company is co-ops are a, demo, a form of democratic ownership most of the time, where all employees of that company uh, get the right to vote on regular decision-making, ongoing decision-making. They can structure around that, but that's mostly how they're organized. As a result, they tend to be used in smaller companies. So that's why when I said 500 uh, companies, 6,000 employees, this average of 12, they tend to be smaller, sorry, smaller companies. And so if you think about a 200-person manufacturing plant that's been run hierarchically for 60 years, got a bunch of structures in place that work, the owner of that company, who is now going to be paid out of company profits over a long time, so is risking a lot if they sell to their employees, is going to have a lot of concern about the risk of selling to a co-op when that company has not been run that way before. But it's a perfectly effective and useful uh, form of employee ownership. It's usually applied to smaller firms. But effectively, Athenian democracy, <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, so, so there's the famous one is in Spain. I'm, I'm blanking on the name now, but there's this massive Spanish company. I, I, you know, I usually have this name at the tip of my tongue. But anyway, it doesn't matter. It's like, hundreds of thousands of employees, and they have a structure that works around the Athenian democracy problem. So they've kind of structured that away, but it's really complicated. But if you want to set up a worker co-op and do it in a way that has more traditional governance and committees, et cetera, it becomes a bit burdensome. So it's not that it also, you know, you have to pay for it. So in a lot of these bigger companies where the, the you know, in a coffee shop, people can maybe afford what those shares would cost. But if you're talking about an industrial company or a electrical distributor or something like that, which is a common form of employee ownership, or in the US and the UK, your employees are not going to be able to afford that one share to buy the company. Fair. So yeah. So the, yes. And the company in question is Moondragon, the largest co-op uh, in the world. Mondragon. Yes. Mondragon. Moondragon. I, I Mondragon. Now I, I might. Oh, my glasses. No, no, Jason. Good. I'm going to call it Moondragon from now on. That is excellent. Mon, it's, it's one O short of a Moondragon. No, totally. Mon, totally. Mondragon. There you yeah, go. yeah. I believe my daughter is reading a book called Moon Dragon. So maybe go. it's really a, a subversive co-op. Based in the Basque Country, so they eat very well. Okay, so talk to me about the incentive for the owner to want to sell their business to an employee yeah. ownership plan, right? Because that's one of the first questions. I mean, yeah, okay, great. You know, if there's a trust that can basically take out a bunch of money and do a leverage buyout internally, great. It solves a succession issue. But beyond that, like, what incentive is there? And we don't just focus on Canada. What, what incentives have been put in place around the world to help encourage these things? Well, they don't. So, you know, I, I think they don't exist in Canada yet. Um, the proposed EOT has no incentives around it. And, and that's or, or very few. So let, let's talk about that for a second, because I left that out of the, the U.S. and the U.K. story. So in the U.K., there was a structure that solved that problem, Jason, before, right? So, so there was a structure that allowed you to have to you know, use a leverage buyout on behalf of employees, but nobody ever used it. And the reason was, if you're an owner looking to sell your company and you don't want to sell to private equity or you don't want to sell to a competitor and you do want to sell to your employees, you take on a couple of big risks, right? You know, one is I am not going to get paid right away. So the time value of money issue for them is a challenge. I'm going to be paid over 70 years. What happens with inflation rate, et cetera, over that time, I'm not going to be paid for a while. 
The second is you're now relying on that company to perform over the, that period of time in order to be able to pay you out, right? At the time, before 2014, before they introduced the tax incentive, that set of risks was too much for owners to choose to do it. And so they, they reluctantly, those who really cared about this stuff, would sell to a third party just because it was you know, too much for them. They would have all their money tied up in these things. Any entrepreneur knows by the time you get to sell these companies, you often have nothing other than the company as your main asset. So what they did in 2014 is they uh, decided to waive the capital gains tax for owners that sold at least a majority, so at least 51% of their company to their employees through this trust. And that followed on the US where they have a very similar program. Quite the incentive. It was, it was a good incentive. And it was enough for now about 5 to 10% of UK companies sell to their employees through an EOT every year, up from zero. Right. So that is a that is a, a substantial and useful amount of the economy that is now being diverted to a broader share ownership in the UK. In the US, it's a smaller percentage, more like one to two percent of American transactions because their structure is a bit more complicated. So but the incentive was required in the US, even after 1974, when they created this, there wasn't a lot of individual owners of privately held companies who used it until the mid 80s when they introduced a similar tax incentive. So it's pretty clear from those two countries that some sort of incentive is required. I mean, we know from the UK with certainty that some sort of incentive is required in order for people to use these trusts. And the reason why, you know, in the UK it was a coalition government that brought this into place. In the US, there's other tax advantages outside of the one I just mentioned brought into place by Republicans and Democrats. The reason why this has been so popular from a public policy perspective is the outcomes are so good and they've been very well studied. So we know that you know, employer companies tend to be more resilient in recessions. They lay off fewer people. They default on their debt more often. They grow faster. All of the things that you would want to be true, they pay more, um, the benefits are better. Everything that you want to be true about the, the companies that are powering the economy are true about employee-owned companies. And so because of that outcome, the governments in the US and the UK have been willing to invest in incentives to create more. The... Um... I mean, it's interesting, you know, besides the fact that it works, which is the number one reason you should do something. The simple fact is from a public policy standpoint, like, yeah, I can get the negatives of latest. Like we're letting business owners basically cash out and not pay any tax on, on these, you know, windfall gains. I get that being a negative, but given where it's going, right. And we're talking about, look, every business has, it's everything from executives down to frontline staff earning minimum, close to minimum wage, depending on, you know, or minimum wage, depending on what kind of staff you're talking about. And to think that it is democratically and equally basically spread out amongst those people, it is, it's one of those stories where it's like, eh, how do you say no to this, right? Like I can almost imagine some companies basically or, or some very concerned with certain parties basically say, okay, the, the company has to look like this, right? It has to, have X percentage of basically non, it, it can't just be a high-end consulting company where everybody earns like $300,000 a year or something like that. Right. You can't right. be transferring from the wealthy to the wealthy, right? I can see I can see someone trying to game that, right? Or, or, or yeah. legislation preventing that sort of gaming. But for the vast majority of businesses in this world, the vast, vast, overwhelming majority, we're not talking about businesses that look like that. Very few businesses look like that. So I think the reality is, is that when you actually think about who the net benefactors of this are, this is anyone... <laughs> Anyone who grew up without money knows these are their parents. These are their, their aunts and uncles. These are, these are the people in, in their community that are the net benefactors of being business owners who never would have been a business owner. And there's something I, th I think also that is 
more incentivizing or psychologically different than owning shares through an ESOP plan because people just treat that as a form of compensation. When you have this kind of like, hey, I have a stake in this company. I don't even cash out until I leave. Like this is this is, yeah. this is me. I'm part of this. Yeah. I mean, look, I think the fundamental from a public policy perspective, the most important point is that these companies are going to be sold to somebody. Yeah. Right. It's not like this is like the option is the owner lives until they're 300 and keeps the company in exactly, they're going to sell it to somebody. And we have to start thinking about how we want the economy to be owned. I mean, we've, we've been entirely ignoring that for the last three or four decades. And as a result, we're becoming more and more concentrated in fewer and fewer hands. We are seeing the rise of ownership by people who are buying and selling companies every three or four years. And these are not useful ways to if you had said to someone 30 years ago that we're going to work towards a company or an economy where companies are bought and sold every five years by people who never even go to the company, well, you I just, just said that is a terrible outcome. But that's where we're going, where well, we're largely already there. It clear, right? By booking right. like, it clean or, or tear it right. apart or sell it off of pieces. Yeah. Or, yeah. Like, I mean, like, you know, look, you're not. And you it's, know, it's an old story, right? It's, it's a story. It's a story that's as long as like. It's not like this is something new. Oh God, Robert Barons, you name it. Go back to the beginnings of capitalism. But the but the right. reality is, is that like, look, and we're not. I'm not about to paint private equity with a with a terrible negative brush over this, right? Like, there's plenty who do not do that sort of thing. But there is something to be said about, yeah, you know what? Again, they buy these things. The clock is ticking. There's a five year window. They want out, yeah, and they want out at a higher price than what they paid, and they're highly leveraged for it. So how do you do that? Through through cutting costs, through basically restructuring the company. Through things yeah. that might be short-term, again, five five years is not a long-term incentive, right? So the it's not so, and you know we can see plenty of studies and criticisms of the fact that Wall Street's obsessed with with three-month intervals, right? Private equity is obsessed with five-year intervals. Yeah, employees should be you know are concerned with their careers, and I think that there's something to be said about that idea of this 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 concept of permanent capital now within the permanent within the yeah. private equity. Yeah. It's a very long-term duration, yes. and how you can steward a business better that way. I think this is completely in line with that. Well, so, so the best story about it in Canada is a company called Friesen. So this is one of the best stories. I mean, the, the, you know, there's lots of Alice Don PCL. There's probably like 60 or 70 of these in Canada, you know, versus the thousands in the other places. But um, in Altona, Manitoba, a family called Friesen's managed to find a way through kind of, you know, they've had to like do a ton of administration over the past, you know, 40 or 50 years, but they have turned a company called Friesen's Publishing Company, one of the second largest, I think it's the second largest in Canada, one of the top two, into an employee-owned company. It's 100% owned by their employees. Altona is a town of 4,000 people. This company employs 600 people. Every year, they get calls from private equity firms in the U.S. They get calls from other publishers in the U.S. who want to buy the company. But because they're employee-owned, they don't sell. Last year, uh, every employee, all the the average employee at, at uh, Friesen's got a, a profit share of ten thousand dollars, right? And this is you know where the average salary is probably around fifty grand, and that happens every year at Friesen's. So you have a you know you have exactly what we have decided to give up on in Canada, right? If you if you talk to someone about the factory in the small town, people will say, well, that is that's gone, that's history, that's inevitable. They're all going to be consolidated. It's never going to it's like this thing exists, right, in this small border town in southern Manitoba and can exist in all sorts of communities. And this is part of the answer to getting there. We have to start coming up. We can't just lament the inevitability of the destruction of the economy. We need things that help us not destroy the economy. And this is one of those things. And do we need to put a little bit of money behind it? Yeah, we do. But the alternative is bad. 
right? Or at least it's bad in a lot of cases, right? Well, it, services the need of, it services the need of, 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 a, of a body of people. And that's fine, right? It services the need of shareholders. That is capitalism. But yeah. you know, the, if, you, if you want to shift your focus to the concept of stakeholder capitalism, which is more common in Europe, then you worry about the entire ecosystem. Now, I get I've heard interesting debates on this and the value of that, that framework, and I think that there's no perfect system. But to basically create a system whereby the stakeholder, the primary stakeholders outside of the consumers, which is the employees, basically have their needs basically being addressed as a primary reason for the existence of the business is not a negative. Like that's a net positive no, if great. that option exists. Totally. I mean, what one of, a nice example I like to talk about is there's a grocery chain called Longo's in the Toronto area. And it is exactly the kind of company, like the, 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 the Longo family. Family owned and operated. The, family yep. owned and operated. We're getting to the end of their ownership of that. They didn't have another generation who was going to take it on. They, they, they need to sell it. In the US, there are a ton of grocery chains facing exactly that situation that have sold to ESOPs and are now owned by their employees. Mm-hmm. What did Longos do? They sold to Empire, one of the three main consolidators. And in welcome Canada. to Canada. Eventually, in the long enough timeline, we'll only be one company in this country. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, like so, so what do we want? Like, what are we, what are we after here? And, and are we going to be willing to put some political will right behind shifting away from that? Outcome? Yeah. I mean, you know, and we had an example happen several years ago where, you know, Heinz pulled out of Leamington after 100 years. Totally. Exactly. Exactly. That that was largely saved by the fact French has started manufacturing out of there. But one of these things where and I think there was a I can't remember correctly if the community bought out the plant itself. But, you know, that's that's an example of something where if they had taken ownership of that plant, they could have just contracted with multiple people. They they ended up basically ending up almost in a share employee share ownership trust type of situation yeah. over the use of the plant asset itself. So it's it's one right. of these things where, hey, we, we see real life examples. And and you know what? That plant is viable, right? It just wasn't as it wasn't what Heinz needed. It wasn't gonna work for Heinz, but that is still still powering the community. Yeah, I mean I, th- I think that's exactly right. And and once we give in to the idea that there's an inevitability around financial decisions made by large companies or financial investment firms. That is a that's giving into something that we don't need to give into, right? There is no reason to give up, and you know it just it just it requires, like I say, some political will to set up other options. I mean, these are owners who often want something different, right? Like I was talking to uh, a the owner of an engineering company, an Ontario-based engineering company who does business all over the world, and he he called me. He said, "Look, I've been following your work. I was really looking forward to this employee ownership trust." But I just I've read about what has been proposed and I don't even I don't get it. He said, you know, I'm, I'm not eligible because it, it requires me to uh, be focused only in Canada. And so you know, I've got these operations all over the world. And so so that's weird. to me. There's the governance structure that I don't understand at all. Like, I don't I don't get it. Right. Like, and, and it seems crazy and completely different from what I've seen elsewhere. And he said, and, and I see that there's no incentives, which I was surprised by. He said, you know, I don't the incentive isn't going to make or break it for me, but but Given the other things and the incentive, I, you know, I, I can't see using it. And that's heartbreaking because he's he said my only other options, he's like in his early 70s, are to sell to private equity or to sell uh, to well, competitors and competitors from Europe. And let's zoom out. Let's have a discussion about the Canadian experience. So what sure. happened in Canada with the placement? This? Let's look at the bigger picture. What happened in the implementation of this in Canada? What did they do and where does it fall short? So uh, we've been working on this for the last three or four years. The expectation was we were going to see as a movement in this last budget, and we did. And so they they proposed, there is proposed legislation. So it's a pretty well-developed plan. And it included some surprises. 
right? So one of the surprises. I love surprises. Yeah, well, you know, look, I, 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 we can talk about the whole, the, how it got here uh, yeah. as well, but, but where we ended up was the proposal includes a, an eligibility requirement that I understand to mean um, 90% of business assets need to be used, need to be Canadian owned, or it needs to be based in Canada at yeah, all times. It's similar to the Canadian controlled private corporations. Yeah. It's intended to mimic, or I think it exactly mimics the requirement for the long-term capital gains exemption. Okay, correct. Yep. It has a governance structure that asks the employees to elect a trustee that will govern the trust. It asks for that to happen prior to the transaction. We'll talk about why that's an issue. And then it has re-elections every five years after that. So the employees now have a democratic say in who governs in the trustee who is responsible for the trust. And that's that's new. No one's ever tried that before. So that's a new experiment that we have concerns about. And finally, it included only a, a very small incentive where now if you sell your company and get paid over time, you can postpone your capital gains tax over five years. You have to pay 20% a year over five years. That's the minimum that currently exists. And, and they've extended it for the purposes of these trusts to 10 years. So you have to, you have to pay at least 10% a year for 10 years if you're paid over time. And so it kind of accounts for the fact that you're going to get paid over time here, but doesn't provide any reduction in capital gains tax, just defers it to match payments. So again, much less than you're seeing so, in the US and the UK. Thanks, no thanks in a lot of ways. It's basically saying, okay, we'll allow these things to exist, but we have really created zero in tax incentive other than the fact that we get you to let you, let you delay the bill another five years potentially. Now, let's be clear on this. That potential deferral is basically, again, from five years where you're paying 20, 20, 20, 20 to 10 years where you're paying 10, 10, 10. That only applies if the payments come in yeah. that. It's the less, it's, it's the greater of payment yeah. or the deferral uh, yeah. escrow. So the reality is, is that if these, if the, if the thing can be financed entirely by debt upfront, there is zero deferral to this. Yeah, no, that's true. That's true. Uh, you know, if it can be financed entirely upfront, that's not a bad result for the owner. But but I agree with you. It, it means it, it does nothing here. It's not a bad result, but it's not an incentive beyond benevolence, for lack of a better term. For sure, that's where it is right now. And, and, and just before we get into the details, just step back. To give the government some credit, right? No one has ever looked at this, you know, in the last 40 years, this thing has existed in the U.S. No Canadian government has ever put this in a budget bill. So I think those on the political side earnestly and genuinely want this to be good. It, it fell to its maybe appropriate places, a relatively low priority among all of their other priorities on the political side, and fell to the bureaucracy to create it. And that's where the issue occurred, right? I, I, I do believe that the government wants there to be a good employee ownership trust, and, and the ship hasn't sailed, right? So we are now in kind of a, a few month uh, consultation period. This bill won't be introduced to uh, be passed until probably October, November, either you know, in, in another uh, budget act, not supposed to be in place until January. So we have some time to fix some of these problems. And I do believe they generally want to, but the first step was not particularly great. So to your point, there's no real incentive. There's a new and untried democratic uh, governance approach, which sounds great. But if you actually walk through some of the potential scenarios, is is quite scary, frankly, for the employees. Yeah. And and of course, eliminates a number of companies that have been super successful in the US and the UK, like ex exporting companies, international companies are not allowed to participate, which and that is frankly more than anything else created yeah. anger among our constituency, companies who are very successful Canadian companies who have been told to go do your best overseas, compete globally, cannot 
participate in this program. Well, and I think it's, you know, and these are already people who have to restructure their corporate structure if they were, if they got it in time in order to qualify for lifetime capital gains exemption prior to becoming, prior to potentially going offside from yeah. the rules, right? So they've already had to do that. They're ready to jump the rope in order to make sure that something that is, that is afforded to a less successful business, creating less jobs, is basically afforded to them, right? Yeah. And now, now instead, we're also saying that this other thing that would have been benevolent is basically off the table for them completely, yeah. Yeah. which is ridiculous. Yeah. And then in addition to that, there is no net additional benefit other than benevolence, quite honestly, to basically yeah. put these in place. And frankly, like, look, I get, again, the messaging around giving successful business owners a big tax break, right? But I think that there's, and, and maybe maybe finance is thinking is that, well, we already have the lifetime capital gains exemption. That's going to be a million dollars shortly. And we know people are multiplying this with family members. That's probably enough. Well, you can't make that assumption on multiplication, but I think there's a lot of territory between 100% tax-free and a million dollar lifetime exemption. Like that's a that's a potential lot well, of real estate there that could basically be, you know, totally. doesn't have to be a hundred percent. It could simply be onto whatever portion gets transferred to the employees up to a certain threshold or yeah. whatever else it is, right? Like there's lots of room to, to, to play with this and to simply make it just pay us slower if you get yeah. if you get paid slower. Yeah. Right. Come on. Thanks no, I, well, I mean, look, there's no so first of all. If you sell to a, your competitor, if your long goes and you sell to Loblaws, you still get your lifetime capital gains exemption. So there's no there's no additional benefit to this process over what you can do today. And we we did a survey which of uh, we had 29 respondents from advisors to business owners and said, you know, this new thing, what do you think? How often is it going to be used? And I think 25 of the 29 said never or seldom. And in fact, when we said if the owner was deeply committed to uh, selling to their employees, would you even use this structure? And 27 of them said no. They'd use an employee hold co or some other existing version. So if you want to do a benevolent transfer to your employees, you can do that now. That's not the point of this. The point of this is to direct of the hundreds of thousands of businesses that are going to sell over the next 10 odd years as the baby boomers retire, to direct some of those businesses to, a, to an ownership structure that benefits workers and communities. That's the point of this thing. And to do that, you need some form of incentive and you need a simple and reliable structure that is sustainable over time. None of those things are true about the current proposal. And I think it's important to stop on this sort of sustainable over time business because the US and the UK have developed these indirect governance structures over time through a lot of trial and error. We ignored them entirely. Like we've ignored that success entirely to create this elected trustee situation. And let me kind of explain the potential downside here for workers. So let's say an owner sells to their employees uh, through this. And, and then five years later, there's, a, there's an election for a trustee. You could have an enterprising M&A lawyer go to that employee base and say, listen, you should elect me as your trustee, because what I'm going to do is I'm going to sell the company. And when I sell the company, I'm going to distribute all the benefits to you, the workers who are here today, destroying all potential future value for workers of the future and rewarding an employee who'd been there, say, for 13 months, the same way as you reward an employee who's been there for 30 years, yeah. right? Like, and because most companies are comprised of people who've been there for less time, right? You, you have kind of your veterans who've been there for a long time, but mostly it's been people who've been there for less than five years. You just need to win a democratic election. First of all, we don't know how those elections are supposed to take place. Hard enough to do it, like a union vote now. You got this new thing. There's no it's rules. Toronto, that was hard enough. 
Anyway. Right. So, 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 you know, I just, there's all of these potential downside scenarios for workers created by something that I think they think sounds good. But I really hope in the next version of this, that is punted out the window because we know how to do this right. We have all this experience and all this stuff to follow. We just need to follow it. It's, yeah, I mean, it's, and look, I, I, think, I, I know, listen, you know, I've, I've been involved in policy before and I know how some yeah. of this sometimes, and it's, it's basically, it's, it gets kicked over to people who are in charge of certain understanding Canadian legal code and everything else. And they don't necessarily have the awareness of what's worked elsewhere in other code or don't just, or the experience that you have, for example, as, as an advocate for it. And they think, well, okay, this is how we'll make it work here without necessarily going to those depths. And, and that's where a lot of this stuff sometimes goes wrong is, yep. you know, misnomers, misjudgment, lack of awareness, being told to get this done by a deadline. And yep. Fortunately, this deserves so much more attention. So I, I you yeah. know, I commend your efforts. I support them. I hope that we can uh, we can change this, get rid of the troubling governance mechanism, copy what does work, and hopefully find ways to incentivize this. Because frankly, it's where is the downside? The downside is, yeah, you give some tax break to a successful business owner. But then again, I will be the first to argue we don't give enough tax breaks to successful business owners because small business drives the economy, and this is a small business planning. Uh, yep, podcast, yep. but yeah. me hate mail. But the and then, but, but it's to the net specific benefit of not large corporations or PE firms or anything else, but to the net benefit of everyone down to frontline service workers of of those employee of, of those of those companies, like to the right down to the janitors employed by them. Hard to see how this isn't a massive social win. And as you said, there's all kinds of data that shows that it absolutely is. Look, and there's a reason why in the U.S. and the U.K., politicians go to employee-owned companies all the time to cut ribbons and make announcements. And it's because of how successful they are and how wonderful they are for people and communities. We want Canada to be a country of Altonas with a bunch of freezons in those communities building better communities. And this is a way to get us there. And look, I, I, I think everything you said about policy was right, Jason. I think I think they are good people there trying to do the right thing. I think their initial stab was probably driven by a lot of the deadline-based stuff you just said. I just, it's a it's actually quite a complex idea. It sounds simple, but when you get into the details, it's quite complex. And I really am hoping, and yeah, I'm really hoping that they put the effort into figuring out you know what's worked in other places and give us the type of program that can lead us to a number of Altonas and a number of Friesens here in Canada. Excellent. John, thanks so much for taking the time for this. Where can people find you and hopefully throw your, their support behind this initiative? Well, so we have a website. Uh, this is big, you know, what I didn't mention is, is there's been a groundswell of support behind this. We have the, the Canadian Employee, Employee Ownership Coalition was created only in January. Uh, you can see that at employee-ownership.ca. And a number of leaders from across the country have stepped up to say, we really need this in, in Canada. And then our work is at socialcapitalpartners.ca. But for this, for this, the context of this conversation, employee-ownership.ca is a place where you can learn a lot more about you know, how we can get uh, this structure in place and the types of people who are advocating for it here in Canada. Excellent. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Jason. So that was my interview with John Shell. I hope you enjoyed that. If you are someone who is interested in this concept and can see the merits of it, uh, by all means, please lend your voice and support to it because frankly, there's still time to fix this before it gets into law. I mean, there's always time to fix it afterwards, but it's always best to do it right the first time. As always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please review on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get podcasts. And until next time, take care. 
This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals, business owners, and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and Spotify, or find more episodes at jasonperera.ca. You can even ask Surrey, Alexa, or Google Home to subscribe for you. 